she's in sixth grade, her, her uh, album will be coming out next week. And that was, thank you, Jade, for that. And any of you who use your talents and gifts to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in week five of Don't Give Up, and we have read this verse beginning with every single message in this series. And next week, we're actually going to preach on this particular verse in the context and the background behind it. But here's what it says. But as for you, be strong. And what does it say, church? Do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, in the next few moments, would you do something that a, that a sermon cannot do? Would you do something that a few songs cannot do? you do something that a charismatic personality cannot do or that an atmosphere cannot do? Can you do something in the, in the next few minutes that only the Holy Spirit can do? And that's changes from the inside out. Let's do a transforming work in our hearts and a renewing of our minds. Father, we are praying for your blessing upon the next few minutes and that your word would be proclaimed. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, I want to give a little bit of a background here. I'd like to share a confession time. I'm never too keen on confession time. I want you to think I've never sinned before. But most of you don't believe that. So now that we've gotten past that, uh, Chelsea and I were married for three months when we went to New York City we doing a conference thing there. And we were in New York City, and it was the first time we ever had a, uh, f- an argument, a disagreement, a, uh, what would you call it? In three months. It wasn't, yeah. It didn't happen in three days, but it happened in three months. And it was our first one, and it was our last one, of course, ever since then. We've never... <clears throat> anyway, so we were in New York City, and we decided that out of all the things that we're going to do, we're going to go to this place called Serendipity, this coffee shop called Serendipity, because there is a movie that we watch seemingly every December, a movie called Serendipity. You guys have seen it or heard of it, and I don't even think... Is that coffee shop even in the movie? It is in the movie. Okay. I don't really watch the movie. She watches it, and I fall asleep. But we went to Serendipity, and somehow by the time we... What's going on here? Okay, somehow, by the time that we left serendipity, um, something went bad <laughs> between us. I don't know what happened. Do you remember what happened? Do you remember what the argument was about? Do you remember what, uh, what it was about? Um, I don't remember what it was about because I forgive and forget so well. So, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, anything I need to do? Doug, Jay, on my end, keep talking. Hey, how's everybody doing today? Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll stay on this until you tell me otherwise. And uh, so I, I don't remember what the argument was about, um, and I, all I remember is I was right and she was wrong. So we... <laughs> I don't even know. All I remember was this is how your preacher maturely, prophetically, godly holiness handled it. I decided to give the, um, <clears throat> the silent treatment. Isn't that impressive? <laughs> You don't want me talking because you don't want me to talk and think what uh, to say what's actually in my mind right now. So that, that's what I, I decided. Do you remember that? I decided to do the manly silent treatment. Now, here's what happens, and I've never done it since, but <clears throat> here's what happens when somebody does the silent treatment. And, and if, for those of you who've ever been involved in the silent treatment, you know this to be true. When you're giving the silent treatment, what you really want to happen 
is your spouse to do what when you're given the silent treatment? Yeah. You want your spouse to, to get so hurt by the silent treatment that they decide, I cannot go on anymore in my life. I cannot live this way. I must have done some deep, dark sin. I must have really blown it. Whatever I did is uncalled for. And as I'm looking this way and given the silent treatment, what, what I really want the spouse to do, which is her, what I really want her to do is to get on her knees and say, I can't live this way. I am so sorry. You are so amazing. Will you ever forgive me? I just want to hear your voice one more time. Okay, I'll talk to you again. That's what we want to happen in the silent treatment. Does it ever work that way? No. She walked up and said, what are you doing? <laughs> and that would be right. Now, now, here's, why do I tell you that story? I don't know now, now that the, I've seen the way you guys reacted. But, <laughs> but don't give up. Thank you. Um, here's actually why I tell that story is because so many people say, and, and, and I've heard it said this way, and you've probably heard it said this way, I didn't, I didn't mean what I said, Nathan. It was just the heat of the moment. I didn't mean what came out of my mouth. I didn't mean that treatment. I was just vulnerable. It was the heat of the moment. It was the heat of the passion. And, and I, I, I didn't mean what I said. When in fact, actually what's true is that in, in the heat of the moment, we actually say what's really on our mind. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's all of a sudden what you've, been, what you've been conjuring up for three months all of a sudden comes out. Well, I didn't mean to say it. It was just, actually, you did mean what you said. It was in there the whole time. That's why it came out in the heat of the moment. And I don't know about you, but I, I actually like it when people are real. Is anybody else with me? You don't like the political correctness. You actually like it when a politician walks up and tells the truth, the truth and nothing but the truth. I don't know if we're, if we're ever going to get that, but if we ever get a politician that actually tells the truth, we will like that. We like transparency. We like the real scoop. We like the real deal. We want to be told no spin, no spin. We don't want spin. Some of my, my most beneficial times in ministry is when I've called up guys who I believe got a handle on their ministry. Some of uh, and I'm not going <clears> to, <throat> I'm not going to name drop though I could, but um. <laughs> I've called up some guys and have said, hey, can you give me an hour of your time? I just want to talk with you. I just want to, I got 10 question, uh, questions here. I just want to walk through the questions. And can you just give me the real scoop on this stuff? Can you just be real? And there's been a few times I've been in the office with the guy, several guys who they just get real and they get vulnerable and they say, well, this is how it is. And I know we never say that out in public, but this is how it is, and this is how the ministry is, and this is what you do in this situation. And I can't tell you how beneficial those times have been for me when somebody talks real. You know what I'm talking about? When somebody gives you the real scoop and the real deal, and they're transparent in their vulnerability. We get to have that time today with the Apostle Paul. If you ever want to know the Apostle Paul, you get to know him in 2 Corinthians. If you want to know his theology, read Romans and Galatians. If you want to know the beauty of his writing, read Ephesians. If you want to know his attitude, read Philippians, the book of joy. He, he had a joyful attitude. If you want to know organizational leadership structure, read 1st, 2nd, Timothy, and Titus. But if you want to know Paul personally, if you want to have a sit-down conversation in his office and for him to give you the real scoop on ministry in his life, read 2nd Corinthians. And out of all the chapters in 2nd Corinthians, he's most vulnerable in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go to 2nd Corinthians chapter 4. This ought to be prerequisite 
reading for anybody who goes into vocational ministry, but really for all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we get to have a sit down with the Apostle Paul, and he lays out in the heat of the moment, in one of his most vulnerable times in his life, this is how it is. This is how it is. And he, he didn't hold any punches in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to begin reading with verse 7. Really, our main text is verses 8 and 9. It's really the jewel of the chapter, but we're going to read verse 7 as well. And I'm just giving you this part kind of as a bonus track on an album. You know, they used to have those bonus tracks. I'm going to give you verse 7 as kind of a bonus. didn't have much to do with the message, but I, I, I couldn't not read this. Verse 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, there's, there's two phrases, treasure and jars of clay. We have this treasure. The treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The treasure is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The, the treasure is the good news that God sent his son and he died for us and we can have a relationship with him forever. That's the gospel. The treasure is the gospel. The jars of clay, we are the jars of clay. What was Paul saying? We are not the treasure. <laughs> Paul was saying, I'm not the treasure. For those of us in ministry, we need to hear that from time to time. Can all God's people say amen? Have you ever been around somebody who thinks, I think they're the treasure? <laughs> they think that they're the treasure. If I leave the church, if I go somewhere else, what's going to happen? Paul said, hey, if you're walking into ministry, no, 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 no. The gospel is the treasure. We're just jars of clay. That was Paul's attitude. You want to you get the real scoop on the deal? We're just jars of clay. And here's what I know about jars of clay. Two things. There's a lot, there's a lot written about jars of clay, trust me. But here's two things I know about jars of clay. They're brittle and they're dispensable. They're brittle and they're dispensable. They're easily broken. And once you break one, you can just go get another one. He says, we're just jars of clay. We're not the treasure. We're brittle. How many of you feel brittle sometimes? And you feel easily broken. Many of you walked in here today broken about something. And you feel brittle. And it is remarkable, and, and, and we can stand up here on Sunday, and we may look strong to you, and we may look like we have it all together. It is remarkable how sometimes one cold shoulder, one statement shows to me how brittle I really am. And if you're sitting down with Paul, and Paul probably looks strong whenever you heard him preach, and he walks into a town, and he starts a church, and, and he gets the leadership going, and and we look at Paul, and we read about Paul. Man, he looks strong, and he, sit, he says here in a living room conversation with us, we have this treasure, but I am brittle. I am easily broken. It doesn't take much to hurt me. One statement, one cold shoulder, one snub, that's all it takes, and I feel brittle. And all of us can sit here today and say, yeah, you know what? I... We, we, we learn as kids to act as adults like we're strong and mom and dad is strong and, and dad's got it all together. No, 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 no. Probably the best thing I could teach my kids is, no, your, your dad is actually brittle. And I can be easily broken, but I'm not the treasure. The gospel is the treasure. Amen, church? So we're brittle and, and we're dispensable. There'll be another preacher at Venture Christian Church. And there'll be another one after that. And I'm not indispensable, and you're not indispensable. Well, that's not very nice in, in this time that we're trying to tell everybody that we're all very important. Actually, the gospel is what is most important. And we just all play a little 
role in God's story and God's agenda and God's grand plan in this world. We're just all jars of clay. And interestingly, archaeologists in the Middle East, what they find most underneath the soil, especially in Corinth, but all over the Middle East, is little pieces of clay. They're finding it every day. Archaeologists find little broken pieces of clay from clay pots. Why? Because they're so easily broken. And there were so many of them. They find it all, all the time. And Paul says, and in, in, this isn't even part of the sermon. We haven't even started the sermon yet, and all of you are afraid right now. He's just saying the treasure's the gospel. We're just jars of clay. We're brittle, and we are dispensable. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, We are pressed on every side by troubles. We are, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Beautiful passage. You probably heard that passage before. We're going to go verse by verse through that or line by line through that. Verse 8 puts it this way. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are pressed. Uh, Many of your translations say there's a lot of pressure. Paul didn't say there wasn't pressure. He said there is pressure. When we walk into his office, and and we say, Paul, I want the real deal. He said, man, I got pressure. And he says, I got pressure on every side. He didn't walk into church and act like it's all okay, and I appreciate that. He didn't say, you know what, if you go into ministry and you decide to sing a song as a sixth-grade girl up here, or you decide to work in the children's area or the nursery area or the setup team and the first impressions or the terror, he didn't say, man, it's all going to be good. Everything's going to move forward after that. He actually says, man, when you start serving the Lord, all of a sudden there's a pressure from every side. Can you relate? Sometimes it just feels like there's a pressure coming from this side, there's a pressure coming from that side, and we don't know where to go. Hudson Taylor put it this way, the old missionary, the the great missionary, he said this. Is it on there? It's not on there. What did Hudson Taylor say? I don't know what Hudson Taylor said because it's not on there. But here's what Hudson Taylor said. He said, you know what? Our pressure will either drive us to God or it'll drive a a wedge between us and God. You decide where the pressure goes. It'll either drive you near to the heart of God or it will drive you away from God. Where does the pressure drive you? When it gets hard, when it gets pressurized and you have pressure on every side, you go closer to God or does it drive a wedge between you and God? Do you latch on to the church family more or do you start to back off and take a break from the church family? Where does the, pre- it, the question isn't whether there'll be pressure. There'll be pressure for all of us, amen? But where does the pressure drive us? Does it drive us closer to him where we say, look full into his wonderful face? Or do we say, you know what, God, if this is what you're going to do to me, then I'm going to back off. And interestingly, what's what's true about this verse is we are pressed on every side. That's reality, but we are not crushed. That's, That's his choice. He can't control the pressure, but he can control whether or not we're crushed. You don't have to be crushed. That's your choice. And then the next line, the next line puts it this way in verse 8. The next line puts it this way in verse 8. I'll just read it here. Yes. Um, We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Now, this this is a word that says we are perplexed, which means we are confused. Have you ever been confused? Never. Once you get married, you're really confused. Where'd that come from? Anyway, let's go back. 
no, have you ever started following Jesus and you, God, where did that, why would you do that? Why would you allow that to happen? Why would, um, I thought I was parenting good and then my child did that. I thought I was doing everything you asked me to do as a parent. And then my child went rogue. My child went prodigal. Why would you allow that? Why would you allow the pressure on every side to come? I don't get it. One of the great examples of this is Moses in the book of Exodus. Do you remember Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt? And everybody, oh, we're, we're going to leave slavery. We're going to the promised land. And then all of a sudden, he runs up against a big body of water called the Red Sea. Do you remember this? And he gets up next to the Red Sea, and all the people are perplexed. <laughs> like, what is this? And then they turn around, and who's right behind them? The army of Pharaoh. You mean you're going, to drive, you're going to lead us out of Egypt and you're going to put the Red Sea here and you're going to put Pharaoh's army right there? You talk about feeling pressure on every side. And all of a sudden, puts it this way in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. When they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? He, he didn't do anything to them. Why did you make us leave Egypt? He didn't. Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? No, they didn't. We said, leave us alone. No, no, they didn't. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. That's stupid. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. No, it's not. What did they do when they felt the pressure? They panicked. And then they blamed and complained. That's what we do so often, isn't it? Once we feel the pressure, we just start pointing the fingers. And we blame and complain. And what we learn about this is that blaming and complaining is the exit ramp to quitting. And if we blame enough and blame enough and blame enough, we can start playing the victim card. And once you play the victim card, quitting doesn't feel like quitting. We just say, well, I didn't have a choice. If my boss would have communicated, I didn't have a choice. If, he would have if God would have opened this door, I, but he didn't, so I don't have a choice. Quitting all of a sudden doesn't feel like quitting when we blame and complain enough. So they panicked. Rather than remembering that God had always delivered them from every other pressure situation in the history of their life, he'd always delivered before, rather than remembering that, they panicked, they blamed, and they complained. And then it goes on in verse 13 to say, but Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just calm down. Don't panic. Just calm down. Who's fighting for you? The Lord himself will fight for you. Now, I got to tell you, if I was God, and there's a lot of reasons why I'm not God, partly because I give the silent treatment to my wife one time, but... If I was God, I, I would mix it up a little bit. I wouldn't put the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army at the same time. Maybe mix it up. Do the Red Sea and then next month do the Pharaoh's army thing. If, if I was God, but why did God do that? Why did God do that? There is a why. We actually have the answer in uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 18. It says this in the message paraphrase, I, and this is God speaking, I'll, I'll use Pharaoh and his entire army and his chariots, and all his horsemen, to put my glory on display so that the Egyptians will realize that I am God. 
I need you guys not to give up. Why? I'm going to put all this on display so that everybody knows I'm God. That was the why. Why didn't you just part the Red Sea immediately and let, because I'm up to something. God says, there's a story unfolding here that you can't grasp, and I'm trying to show the Egyptians there's a God beyond your little pyramid gods. I am the one true God, and I'm putting my glory on display. Hallelujah. There is a reason. There is a reason if we do not give up. So he says, we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're perplexed. We're confused. God, I don't know why you're allowing this to happen. But it's, it's Paul's choice to say, I'm not driven to despair. And um, there, there used to be a day a long time ago before iPads and cell phones and uh, computers where in the evening time, families would play together with their, with their hands, like dominoes and cards and, and board games. And sometimes families would go to this magical adventure land called Outside. There was a time that families did that. I don't know if anybody remembers that time. We, we try to do that, and, and we try to pull the screen away from the kids sometimes and actually play board games. We're playing a game right now, Zingo or Zanga or Zupu or something. <laughs> kids love it, and I, and I lose every time every now and then I win just to let them know who's the boss. But anyway, um, man, I have issues. So... One of the things that we do is puzzles. We haven't done puzzles in a while, but sometimes we do puzzles. So we work together with our puzzles. And, and this is what we've discovered. Uh, it was probably about a year ago, nine months ago, we, were, we got out a puzzle, and we discovered that the, because at that time we had a two-year-old in our house, many important things in our house started missing. And one of the things that started missing was the box of the puzzle. We still had the pieces in a toy box, so we got the pieces out. But the box of the puzzle was missing. Now, why is the box of the puzzle important? Because it has the picture. <laughs> It's really hard to put the pieces together without the picture. The picture gives the pieces purpose. The picture gives the pieces a place. And you start putting the pieces together, and all of a sudden you can start to find where their place in the story goes and where the plan for the piece is and the purpose for their existence. And all of a sudden, when you have the box, when you have the picture, everything goes together a lot easier. But God didn't give us the box. He didn't give us the picture. And he says, trust me. And just start putting the pieces together. And we say, yeah, but I don't know what the final product looks like. He says, trust me. And by the way, that's what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things we have not seen. We live by faith and not by sight. Faith is continuing with the puzzle without seeing the picture. And every now and then we put a few pieces together and we think we're all that in a bag of chips. We think we have the, oh, I think I know what this is going to look like. And then all of a sudden life throws us another curveball. We realize we don't know what the picture is going to be. But he's got a great picture in the end. Just keep on keeping on. Keep putting the pieces together. That's what faith is. Even though I can't see what the end result is going to be. And by the way, just so you know, the end result is going to be better than we can ever ask or imagine. The final picture is going to be amazing. But faith is taking away the box and continuing to push forward with the picture. And Paul says, hey, I, I'm the first one to tell you. You're going to walk into my office. I'm going to tell you, I don't know all the answers. Uh, but Paul, I came to you because I thought you know. No, sometimes I'm perplexed. I don't know why that last town were throwing rocks at me and trying to kill me. But I'm not in despair. I'm not giving up. And then verse 9, 
It says, we are hunted down but never abandoned by God. Some of your translations say, we are afflicted, but it is a word that means you are hunted like wild game. Like you are out in the woods and you are being hunted like wild game. A few weeks ago, we explained that you're a target. And that's what this verse is saying right here. There's another verse that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul says, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, if you're going to walk in my office, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm being hunted down right now. I'm a target of Satan. It's like a wild game being hunted. I am hunted down. But let me just tell you, I know this. If God is for me, who can be against me? And sometimes we ask that question. It is a question in your Bible. If God is for us, who can be against us? And we try to answer the question, unfortunately. I think it's a rhetorical question. We don't have to answer that question because some of us are thinking, if God is for us, who can be against me? Actually, God, I have a list of people against me right now. I don't know what you're talking about. There are several people against me. And God is saying, you can take the whole world against you, but if I'm on your side, you're still going to win. And so, you know what? You may have a bunch of people hunting you down right now, but God is still with you. How do we know that? Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says this. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? was the most valuable possession that God had, his son? Yes. Did he give up that which was most valuable to us for him? Yes. If he gave up that which was most valuable in his possession and he gave it up for us, wouldn't it make sense that he's going to take care of everything else in our life? So we have a choice today. We, can, we, have, we have two options. We can either look and decide if God loves us based on the cross or based on our circumstances. You can look at your circumstances, and it's a day-by-day thing. Does God love me? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Just depending on our mood of the day. And actually, we can go hour by hour differing on that. Does God love me? doesn't feel like it right now because I'm looking at my circumstances. I don't look all that great. But he says, hey, don't you know that he did not spare his only begotten son, and he did that for you? Do you not realize God loves you? He loves you eternally. He loves you unconditionally. He loves you today, forever, and always. He loves you. How many of you know God loves you? And our circumstances do not dictate whether or not God loves us. If he took care of us at the cross, he's going to take care of us for the rest of our life. And then it goes on in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Can anything, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? No. Or are persecuted? No. Or hungry or destitute? No. Or in danger? No. Or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. One of the biggest mistakes we ever make is start questioning God's love for us based on our circumstances when we should be looking through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have to fight for victory, friends. Victory is already yours. We sometimes go out there and act like we're trying to win a victory. We are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. You are already victorious. We have already won because of the cross. Verse 9, the last part. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. It's the the original language. It's like a sucker punch. It's like an out-of-the-blue punch. I didn't see that coming. It's the phone call in the middle of the night that you didn't see coming. It's the doctor's report that shocked you. It's the day that you wake up for breakfast and it's a great day and then by lunch your whole life has changed. It's the 
It's the gut punch. Yeah, I've, uh, Paul says, I've been knocked down, but I've, I'm not destroyed. Getting knocked down is out of your control. Whether or not you're destroyed is your choice. And Paul was, he, he admitted, I can get knocked down. Actually, if you want to read all about the Apostle Paul, he got knocked down a lot. Paul says, you can knock me down, but I will not stay down. You can knock me down on that ring, but the referee will never count to 10 on me. I will not be destroyed. I will not give up. Many of you know who Winston Churchill is. He was the prime minister for uh, Great Britain during World War II. What many people don't know is that he actually, it took him three years to pass eighth grade. I don't know how many of you know that. He could not figure out the English language. So it took him three years to pass eighth grade. Amazingly, ironically, Oxford University asked him to give their commencement speech years later. A boy took three years to get through eighth grade, is giving Oxford University's commencement speech years later. And as he walked up to the stage in his usual props when he was giving his commencement speech, his top hat, his cigar, and his cane, he always had those things. When he walked up, everybody stood and applauded. Thunderous applause. And he got up and he put his top hat down and he took his cigar out of his mouth. All the crowd got quiet. They wanted to listen to every word that Winston Churchill was going to say. He took a deep breath and he said three words. Never give up. And then he paused. A few seconds passed and then he said three more words. Never give up. Grabbed his top hat, put it back on, put a cigar back in his mouth, and walked off the stage. <laughs> and what's the Apostle Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Yeah, life is hard, and I am fragile. Never give up. If you're going to serve in the army of the Lord, if you're going to walk into ministry, you're going to be hurt, you're going to be wounded, you're going to be hunted down, it's going to be painful from time to time, but that doesn't mean we have to be in despair, that doesn't mean we have to give up, and that doesn't mean we have to be destroyed. Never give up. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage. Why? Well, verses 8 and 9 is bookended by verses 7 and 10. There is a why to this. Verse 7 puts it this way. We have this treasure in jars of clay. I don't know if you caught this earlier. To show what? That this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Who's it all about? It's all about God. And then he goes on, verse 8 and 9, and then he ends it with verse 10. He says it this way. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Many of your translations say, so that Jesus can be revealed. Yeah, I may die. I may share in the death of Jesus. I may be stoned to death. I may be shipwrecked. I may be beaten. I may be flogged. I may be hunted down. But it's all good just so that Jesus can be revealed to a watching world. Sometimes our greatest evangelical activity and our greatest witnessing is not when we're trying to witness, but whenever, whenever the world throws a curveball at us and we don't give up and the watching world says, this must be real for you. How do you know it's real for him? Because when he was pressured on every side, he was not crushed. How do you know it's real for Paul? Because when he was confused and perplexed, he was not in despair. He knew that God could see something he could not see and God could grasp something he could not grasp. How do you know what's real for Paul? Because when he was hunted down, he knew that God had never abandoned him. If God is for me, then who can be against me? 
How do you know it's real with Paul? Because when he was knocked down, every single time he got back up. That's how we know it's real. And in the end, it's all for his glory. It's all for his glory that Jesus may be revealed. Let me just tell you this. It's good that you're here. And you ought to come back next Sunday. And you ought to come back next Sunday. And you ought to come back the next Sunday. If for anything else, just to be reminded every single week as our week starts, it's not about you. It's all about him. It's not about you. It's all about him. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, it's not about you. It's not about you. Wait, I thought it was all about me. That's why I was throwing a fit when my circumstances weren't good. Look at the cross. And maybe he's going to put a red sea on one side and he's going to put Pharaoh's army on the other side. But at the end of the day, he's going to use the red sea and he's going to use Pharaoh's army and he's going to use his chariot men and he's going to use his horsemen and he's going to use his, his, his cavalry all to put on display the grandeur and glory of God to let the Egyptians know that God is real. Jesus came and the tomb is empty. It is amazing what happens in the midst of our pressure-packed situation when we hold on and we don't give up and we keep fighting for the Lord Jesus Christ. People see that and he gets the glory. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for Paul's example. Thank you for this vulnerable passage, this vulnerable chapter where he gets real. We get to know him on an intimate level. I appreciate his theology and other books, and I appreciate the beauty of his writing in Ephesians and the joy that he has in Philippians. But Father, I, I really need 2 Corinthians. This is good for me to get to know him on a personal level and to see that whenever you walk into ministry, and we're all in ministry here today, when we walk into the army of the Lord, yeah, we're gonna feel pressure. And yeah, we're gonna be confused. And yes, we're going to feel hunted down and we're going to get knocked down from time to time. Something's going to happen that we didn't see coming. But Father, it is our choice not to give up. Thank you for Paul's example. This might be the best lesson we could ever learn in our Christian faith. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.